Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray, O Lord, that your work in us would be advanced. Give us conviction. Give us understanding. Give us a desire, Lord, to be more obedient to you, to live every aspect of our lives for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a slogan in our culture, a slogan that our culture has embraced, and maybe you've heard it. If you pay attention to the news, if you're on social media, you've probably heard it. Where is the outrage? You guys heard that? Where is the outrage? You know, the, the, the police have stepped over the line again today. Where's the outrage? Let's riot. You know, that's, that's the response. The president pays ransom money to Iran, and the media looks the other way. Where's the outrage? Let's double our efforts to make America great again. Mentally ill people are slipping through the cracks of our system. Veterans of foreign war are increasing in homelessness and their suicide rate is skyrocketing. There's a growing gap between the rich and the poor. Our property values aren't where they should be because so-and-so down the street hasn't mowed his yard in six months. Where is the outrage? Where's the outrage? As you can see, the list of things that we can feel outrage about is practically indefinite. It goes on and on and on, and it reveals that there are a lot of things that we see going on in society around us, we see going on in the world, that we perceive to be unjust. And yet, as Christians who believe what God's Word says about our condition, we must remember that humanity's sense of justice is flawed. It's tainted. It has been corrupted by sin. And so our outrage can very easily, very, very easily be corrupted and be less than pure and righteous. God's anger, on the other hand, God's outrage towards sin is untainted. Unlike our outrage, God's anger is always, always, always justified. And for that reason, you and I are left with no room to complain about God ever being unjust. We have no room to complain that God is unfair. We have no room to complain that God is unreasonable in His judgments. Today's message comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, and is titled, Paradise Lost, Punishment, Penitence, and a Promise. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that God is a holy, perfectly holy God, and as such, He must exercise justice against sin. He must punish sin. We all instinctively realize that a perfectly righteous judge cannot just give a wink and a smile and a nod to evil. A perfectly righteous judge can't just turn a blind eye to wrongdoing as if if he doesn't see it, it doesn't happen. So how dare we ever expect anything different from God? 
Now, in the passages leading up to our text today, we've seen that God created man, created Adam, to live theocentrically. The word theocentric, again, means God-centered. Theo is God-centric. Centered. So we've seen that God created man to live theocentrically, to live in a way that's God-centered. And yet, Adam and his wife were tempted in the garden in Eden by the serpent, who we saw was none other than Satan. And they violated the covenant that they had with God. They violated the one rule that God had given them. Just one rule, a simple one. Do not eat from the tree of good and evil knowledge. They broke that rule. And upon doing so, upon sinning, upon transgressing, Adam and his wife both immediately saw that they were naked and so they felt shame. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking nearby and they felt fear. And so they tried to hide. And so what we saw from that is that our senses are fallen. They're affected by sin. They're affected by the fall. Our intellect, you know, trying to hide from a God who sees everything. Our intellect is fallen. And when they were confronted with their sin, both Adam and his wife played the blame game. Adam blamed the woman and God in the same breath, which is pretty hard to do, but he did it. And his wife tried to pass the buck to the serpent. Neither Adam nor his wife owned up to their sin. Neither confessed their sin. Neither repented. They both refused to repent of their sin. God's loving kindness for sinners does not in any way negate His perfect righteousness and His perfect holiness. God has a holy hatred for sin. And while it's absolutely true that God is love, 1 John tells us that God is love, 1 John also tells us that God is light and that in Him there is no darkness. Only a judge who is in darkness to some degree would turn a blind eye to sin. A holy God who is all-knowing, all-present, must deal with with sin. His name is at stake. His glory is at stake. And His love for the sinner. All all these things demand that God deal justly with sin. So how will God deal with the sin that has now entered into His creation when Adam and his wife violated the terms of the covenant that they had with God? How is God going to deal with this? He starts by casting a judgment upon the serpent. We start in verses 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 3. We read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now you might remember in the passage that we looked at last week that God questioned or he he kind of cross-examined Adam and his wife. He gave them a chance not to explain what had happened per se, but to confess and to repent 
to turn from what they had done. The serpent, on the other hand, unlike Adam and his wife, is simply immediately judged. God doesn't try to spur him on. He doesn't try to prompt him to confess or to repent. He is immediately judged. God asks no questions of him. He gives him no opportunity to change his direction. And that's because, as we saw, Satan is the serpent. Satan is the serpent, and he has already been judged. Satan has already been judged. He's already been cast down from heaven, from trying to overthrow heaven. And he took one-third of the angels in heaven with him. So who's to be punished? The serpent or Satan? There's a dilemma, right? Who are you going to punish? They both have consequences. And God starts by judging the serpent whom Adam's wife, who, by the way, has not been named yet. We we know what her name is because we know the story, right? But in the story itself, in the Bible, she hasn't been given a name yet. She hasn't been referred to by name. So whom Adam's wife, she had just tried to blame in the verse prior. The accusation was that he deceived her. That the serpent, that Satan deceived her, and so she became a sinner. And it's true. It's true. He, he deceived her. It didn't excuse her from sinning. But what she said was true. It's true that Satan deceived her through the serpent. He's the one who opened the door to sin, and she gladly walked right through. Now, you might be asking, why is the serpent addressed first? And is that even significant? I think it is. Maybe it's because he committed the greatest sin, possibly. But it also seems possibly more likely that God is just working his way up the proverbial chain of command, starting with the bottom, starting with the serpent. This is the order of creation that God himself had ordained. That the serpents would not rule over man, that the animals would not rule over man, but that man would have dominion over the earth and over the beasts of the field, including the serpent. And we saw that that order was flipped upside down in the moment of temptation. The implication here is that even if in sin we defy God's order for creation, and even if we go so far as to reverse the order that God has ordained for His creation, the order of creation has not changed with God. The purposes, the roles, they have not changed with God. They haven't changed in His eyes. So God says, because you have done this, and of course this refers to opening the door to disobedience, enticing the woman and Adam to walk right in, and he curses the serpent because of what he's done. He won't curse Adam. He doesn't say, curse it or you to Adam. And he won't say, curse it or you to Adam's wife either. But the serpent itself is cursed. All of creation, all of creation would fall under the curse of sin. Every molecule, every atom in the universe would be adversely affected by the fall. But the serpent's curse, the serpent's curse is greater and it's more specifically, more, more directly aimed right at him. The punishment for his crime will be, will be that he will walk or he will crawl. He won't be able to walk any longer. There's an implication that he was walking prior to this maybe. 
but that he will crawl on the ground and that he will eat dirt all the days of his life. Now, before you go and become a snake activist and start protesting that it seems so unfair that God would curse all serpents to crawl in the dirt, we must not lose sight of one fact. God is perfectly good. And God is perfectly holy. And His judgments are always pure and true and righteous and just. Job 34.12 says, Truly God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So let's determine from the outset to accept the fact that God's judgments are always, always just. The serpent receives a just consequence, a just punishment. And the principle that we see here, this is an important principle. The principle that we see here is that the devil's instruments will partake of the judgment that the devil himself has earned. Let me say it again. The devil's instruments will partake of the same punishment that the, ju- that the devil himself has earned for himself. Those who don't want to be judged alongside the devil would be wise to refuse to avail themselves to his use. Micah 17, uh, chapter 7, verses 16 and 17 says, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like crawling things of the earth. Psalm 72, 9 says, May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. You see, eating or, or licking dust is a sign of utter disgrace. It's a sign of defeat. It's degrading. And this is the judgment for those who partner with the kingdom of darkness. That should give you an idea of the significance of Jesus telling His disciples as He sends them out at one point in His ministry to preach the gospel in neighboring villages and towns. He says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. It's a roundabout way of saying Only the devil would refuse this message. And if you want to partner with him, then dust is yours. This is why, friends, it is so dangerous for us to tempt others to sin. Whether that's by explicit or implicit endorsement or approval of sin, it is serious, serious business. We must walk closely and humbly with the Lord. We must study and understand His Word so that we know what He finds offensive and we know what He finds pleasing. And we must be very, very careful to avoid even the appearance of endorsing something that God condemns. Jesus said, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom 
they come. It would be better for him if a, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Paul would say to the Romans that we must decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He would go so far as to say to the Corinthians, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Jesus made it clear that tempting others to sin, enticing others to sin, is serious business. Paul reiterated that. It's serious stuff. It's serious stuff, so don't do it. Tempting others to sin is serious business. And you might say, well, you know what? Everybody's got to do their own thing. I can't actually make somebody else sin. I can't cause somebody else to sin. They have to do that on their own will. They have to do that on their, their own volition. And you'd be right. That, that's, that's true. But the serpent didn't make Adam or his wife sin either. He didn't, he didn't force them to do anything. He didn't make them sin. Nevertheless, he... And every serpent since is cursed because partnering with the kingdom of darkness in making sin appear enticing is a no-no. Next, God shifts his focus not to the serpent, but to Satan himself, promising to put enmity between Satan and the woman. And, and it's kind of interesting. He places a, a natural hostility between the one who introduces death and the one who will bring life into creation. Martin Luther said of this next part where, where Satan is judged, he says, this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. This is called the first gospel. It's the first glimpse, the first foreshadowing of the gospel which is coming. See, God's judgment upon Satan includes a promise. It includes a promise, a promise that though the devil had started this this war, God would end it. It was a war that was just starting, but it would continue throughout History. It would continue through the offspring of the devil. It would continue through the offspring of the woman. And God would allow and use this war to advance his own plans and purposes. God could have just squashed this thing. But he had a greater plan. He had a greater good that was going to unfold through history. A greater plan of redemption. You see, the offspring of the woman represents the one who can overcome the serpent. The offspring of the serpent represents the kingdom of darkness. The woman's offspring would be the one who would represent the kingdom of light. And who's that? It's Jesus. This is, this is the first promise that a Savior is coming. A, a, another, a better Adam is coming. Do you see that it's kind of odd that God talks of the offspring of the woman? Normally, and this is just, this is a rare exception, but it's something that can very easily escape our notice. Normally, the Bible talks about offspring through men, 
through the father's line, through the father's lineage. Ancestry was normally traced through the fathers. When we get to a genealogy, we'll, we'll learn all about that. It was normally through the father. But God talks to the woman and says, your offspring. So the significance here is that this is just kind of a a subtle hint that the one who was to come, the one who would crush death, the one who would crush the head of Satan, would be born of a virgin. It would come through the mother's offspring. But not an earthly father's. See, to this day, the fact that serpents still eat dust and crawl on the ground is a reminder that the curse that was placed upon the serpent is still active. It's still valid. It's ongoing. But it's a reminder also that the judgments against Adam and against his wife are also still being carried out today. And that they will continue to be carried out until the day that God brings forth a new heavens and a new earth and His enemies will be eternally cast into the lake of fire. Sadly, Satan's not going there alone. Those who partner with the kingdom of darkness will be there with him, will be there alongside of him. It's serious business. But we have to remember that God is perfectly holy, and as such, he must exercise his perfect and righteous judgment, his justice against sin. So having sentenced, having judged the serpent and and Satan, he now turns his attention, God now turns his attention to the woman. And you have to think, if you were standing in her shoes and you've just heard what this serpent is is now going to be subjected to, how do you think she was feeling after she heard the serpent's judgment? I think, I have to imagine that she was feeling kind of a strange mix of being absolutely terrified, but also being hopeful and being confused. She would be terrified because she sees in this moment, she has, she has an epiphany. She sees that God takes sin very seriously. In fact, He takes it more seriously than she did. He takes it more seriously than we do. He's far more offended by it than she had ever imagined. But she must be hopeful and confused because God has declared that she would have this offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. An offspring. So there's hope. So God says, Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Let me just start by acknowledging that my flesh makes this something that's really hard to preach about. That this is a passage that a culture that is saturated and infatuated with feminism is going to have a great degree of difficulty with swallowing. As I saw this and and started thinking about it, I had to deal with my own flesh, reminding myself that God's judgments are good and just because my first thought was, man, what have I got myself into? How how am I going to preach this without sounding like a chauvinist pig? 
But if that's what you think, if you think that I'm a chauvinist pig because I'm preaching this passage, the truth is that your issue isn't with me. Your issue is with the God who pronounces this judgment. And the truth is that it is our sinful flesh which causes us to minimize the offense of sin. It's our sinful flesh and it's, it's our worldliness, it's, our, it's, it's carnality that causes us to question or to cringe at God's holy and perfect and righteous judgments. That's our sin. God continues working up the chain of command here, addressing Adam's wife next. And please note that God uses the word surely in her judgment. Surely. He, he, he didn't use that word in sentencing the serpent. And he's not going to use that word as he sentences Adam. And if you don't know the significance of that word, if you don't remember the significance of that word, she had either overlooked it or she had omitted it when she was telling the serpent what God had said would happen if she and her husband ate of the forbidden fruit. God had said, on that day you will surely die. And Eve had omitted that word. So is it a coincidence that God only uses this word that she had forgotten or that she had omitted? Is it a coincidence that he only uses this word when he's addressing Eve? Maybe. Maybe not. The first consequence that God issues for the woman's transgression, for her sin, is that God himself would surely multiply her pain in childbearing. And that's good news and it's bad news, right? She would be able to participate in carrying out the purpose that God had given her and Adam of multiplying and filling the earth. And to do that, she has to be alive, at least in a physical sense. She's got to be alive in a physical sense to do that, right? So, so that's good. But doing so will not be easy. Doing so will not be easy. What would childbearing have been like if they hadn't sinned? We have no idea. We don't know. The, the pain, all we know is that the pain was multiplied. So apparently there was some degree of pain, but that it was nowhere near what it is today. Any of you mothers, did you have an epidural? I don't blame you, by the way. But an epidural is a reminder that the curse of sin is still ongoing, right? So the first thing that's affected is her childbearing. God himself will multiply her pain in childbearing. Secondly, her marriage would be affected adversely. It was designed to be easy. It was designed to be theocentric. But now, after the fall, it won't be easy. And there's a parallel here that I don't want you to miss. If you've got your Bible open, look down at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Because this sounds positive. God says, your desire shall be for your husband. It sounds good. It sounds like a, like a positive thing, right? But it's not. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What does that mean? Its desire is for you. It's not good. It means that sin wants to control him. It means that sin wants to dictate what he does. As one commentator notes, and I'm just going to punt to a commentator here so that you don't just think it's me saying this. He says, quote, The woman would now desire to control her husband, but she would fail because God has ordained that men should lead. End quote. Just as sin would desire to lead Cain, wives, after the fall, would desire to lead their husbands. Spousal submission would not be something that comes easily and would not be something that comes naturally. And we see, we have to see, that this is a result, this is a byproduct of the fall from the God-centered life that God had designed and intended, but which Adam and his wife had rejected. And it's not so much a part of the curse that she would be desiring to control her husband. And it's not a mandate for men, by the way, when he says he shall rule over you. It's not a mandate for men to act like tyrants in dealing with their, with their wives. But human relations are going to be strained whenever relations with God are strained. See, if you don't have your relationship with God straight, your relationship with people is also going to be suffering the consequences. Do you remember the picture I gave you of the theocentric marriage? It's like a triangle where God's at the top and the two lines on the sides are husband and wife, and as they get closer to God, they get closer together. What happened in the fall from theocentricity is that it caused humanity to fall away from God. We started up here, man and wife, right there with God, close to each other, and fell. And man fell. And as that happened, they fell further and further away from each other. Were it not for the fall, Paul would never have had to instruct wives to submit to their husbands. And he wouldn't have needed to instruct husbands to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church. Were it not for sin, were it not for the fall, they would have remained mutually submissive. Husbands and wives would have remained mutually submissive by will and by nature, as God had intended. Both spouses would have naturally and joyfully submitted to and loved each other perfectly had sin not entered in. Friends, the reality is that sin has corrupted both the willful submission of the wife and the loving and tender and humble headship of the husband. Male headship wouldn't even be a point of contention or a heavy burden for any woman to bear were it not for sin, were it not for our fallen nature and our sinful inclinations. Sin is what has caused this to become a heavy burden for us to bear and a big pill for us to swallow. 
modern radical feminism has tried to overturn this consequence of sin. And in a sense, that's been partially justifiable because men should never, ever have treated women or viewed women as a lesser or inferior gender. And yet modern feminism goes too far because it asserts that men and women are equal in every sense, in every way, and that submission to male headship is a social evil to be overcome. According to radical feminism, the distinctions that God has placed, that God has designed between the genders are evil. God himself has ordained these distinctions. Not society, God. These are not social constructs. These are not things that have been invented by man. This is the way God designed things. For there to be distinctions. And for those distinctions not to be pushed down or eliminated, but for those distinctions to be celebrated. God himself ordained these distinctions. Men and women are equal in nature. There is no superior or inferior gender. But nobody really believes that men and women are equal in every possible way. That's why when you watch the Olympics, you know, they, they have weightlifting. How many women are competing with the men? None. Why? Because men and women aren't equal in their strength. We, we get that. It would be ridiculous to have a woman try to compete with these guys who can lift, I don't know how much weight they lift, way more than I can even imagine. There's a transgender mixed martial artist. Mixed martial artist is kind of like kickboxing except with wrestling and you know all kinds of stuff mixed in. It's all the, the martial arts put together and you go in there and you get in a cage and, and you fight. And there's a transgender mixed martial artist who was born a man and who now claims to be a woman who goes into the ring and he knocks one woman after another out. You can find this on YouTube. This is real stuff. Only a fallen, completely depraved, maybe insane mind would think that something like that is good is right. Men and women are equal in nature. But modern feminism is completely wrong. Men and women have ordained distinctions. And they serve different functions by God's design. God's final judgment upon the woman is that her husband would rule over her. And I understand that no husband leads perfectly. Believe me, I'm a a case in point, and my wife would love to shout amen right now, I'm sure. But I just want to offer one comforting thought to any and and every woman who has struggled to do this, who has struggled to submit to her husband because he's been abusive or because he's been overly domineering and he's been a poor leader of a husband. One word of comfort for you, and that is that he will have to give an account for the way that he has led you before the Lord someday. Husbands, this is real stuff. You will give an account for the way you have led 
your house. The truth is that overly domineering or emotionally or or physically abusive husbands and the ideals of radical feminism make this a really difficult pill to swallow. I, I get it. Believe me, I, I, really, I really do get it. It's hard. I get it. But God is righteous. God is holy. And His judgments are always just. His judgments are always true. His judgments are always pure. The idea here is that the woman's punishment would be wrought in her home life as a wife and as a mother. If she wants joy... If she wants satisfaction, if she wants peace in life, nothing in her home life is going to bring that to her. It would have to be found by first seeking joy and satisfaction and peace in life from God Himself. I hope you can see the grace in that. I hope you can see the grace in that. God is perfectly holy, and as such, he must exercise justice against sin. The curse undoubtedly brings a deep sorrow to women. But the discomfort and the pain and the strife and the emotional anguish are all in place in order to draw your attention, women, wives. It's all designed to draw your attention and your heart back to God to find your greatest joy in life in Him. Adam is the last to be addressed. He's got to be scared. He's got to be absolutely terrified. He, he tried to pass the blame to his, his wife. He had tried to pass the blame off to God. But the guilt of sin remained squarely on his shoulders. And so he's going to receive the lengthiest rebuke. He gets three verses. The serpent got two verses. The woman got one verse. Adam gets three verses. Verses 17 to 19, we read this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Eve's family life and her home life would become increasingly more difficult and more complicated And Adam, his ability to work, his ability to labor, to survive, these things would become increasingly painful and toilsome and difficult. Because of Adam's sin, because he rebelled willfully, he wasn't deceived. He knew what was going on. He did it willfully. Because of his sin and his rebellion, God tells him that the ground will be cursed. Once upon a time, all of the ground on all the earth was holy ground. Once upon a time, all the ground of the earth was sacred. It was all set apart for the sake of blessing and providing enjoyable and easy sustenance and nutrition for Adam and his wife. 
It provided an abundance of vegetation, more than enough, more than they ever could have used or eaten. It was the dwelling place that God had given to man. A place that didn't require shoes or foot protection. Have you ever thought about the fact that shoes are part of the curse? Sounds strange, right? But it's true. If Adam wouldn't have sinned, we would have never needed shoe companies. We would have never needed protection for our shoes, for our feet. What does it mean for the ground to be cursed? God tells us. He tells us exactly what it means. It means that the blessed vegetation would be replaced by weeds. And that these weeds would be covered in thorns and thistles. What once brought nutrition and nourishment would now be replaced by something that would threaten to choke out and destroy their sustenance, their vegetation. And which would threaten to cause incredible and immediate pain capable of penetrating the skin, capable of drawing blood. It's sin that would cause this blessed, comfortable dwelling place to become a toilsome and painful dwelling place. The first consequence that Adam brought upon himself and humanity is that the ground would be cursed. Sin would turn a place of blessing into a place of barrenness. The second consequence is that man would have to labor in pain and discomfort to find and prepare his daily sustenance. His life would be far less enjoyable. By nature, he wouldn't worship in his work. It wouldn't be a natural thing like it was in the garden. His life would no longer be theocentric. His work would no longer be worshipful. And it would be like this, not only for the duration of his life, but for the duration of the lives of all of his offspring as well. But there's an element of grace in this judgment, just as there was for his wife, and that is that his time on earth would be limited. He wouldn't need to toil and labor and sweat and be in physical pain all all of eternity, for all of eternity, because his days would be numbered. His pain, his toil, it wouldn't endure indefinitely. The third consequence is that he would return to dust where he came from. Unlike the serpent, he's not sentenced to eating dust or crawling in the dust, but he will eventually die and he'll be buried in the dust. And before long, he'll be completely forgotten. Adam the gardener would become Adam the field worker. God is perfectly holy, and as such, he must exercise justice against sin. Why is there death in the world? Why is there disease in the world? It's part of the curse of sin. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Every molecule in the world, every atom in the universe was adversely affected by the curse of sin. And this is the world that Eve's offspring, the promised one, would enter into 
including this, this offspring, who would suffer a bite by the serpent, but who in doing so would crush the head of the serpent. He would not only defeat Satan, he would not only defeat death, he would not only be the last and greater Adam, this offspring, this promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ, would bear the curse once and for all for those who, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, would put saving faith in Christ alone. Paul tells the Romans that death reigned as a result of sin, but God Himself would step out of eternity. He would take on flesh and He would give eternal life. He would bring forgiveness to all whom the Father would draw to Him. And He promised that death would not be final for them. He would raise them up on the last day. John 6.44 Like His wife, if Adam or His offspring us, would want to find true joy and satisfaction in life. It would only come, it would only come from looking to God. Everything else is a cheap counterfeit. Our work, our toil, our pain, it is all designed to cause God's children to grow in the likeness of Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29. God's causing all things to work together for the good of not everyone, for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. And that goodness, according to verse 29, is Christ-likeness. All things are designed to grow God's children in Christ's likeness. You see, a righteous God will have a holy hatred for sin, And an all-wise God will have a solution for sin. And the Lord Jesus is God's perfect solution to sin. Christ alone is the antidote to the serpent's venom. Life is hard. Life is hard. But know this. If you are a child of God, through faith in Christ alone, if you are a child of God, then any discomfort or affliction or trial or hardship in this world, these things are not a curse for you. They're not a curse for you. They are a blessing. They're a blessing in the sense that they will stir up a hunger for you or a hunger in you for Christ that constant and perpetual comfort would not. It will turn your eyes to heaven in a way that comfort never would. God has not destined His children for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. Don't you see? In Christ, we have something better than a life with no discomfort. We have redemption with God. We have the adoption as sons and daughters of the one true living God. And not even death is final. And not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Adam's role 
has been changed a little bit. He's going to have a new type of headship over his wife where it doesn't come naturally. And she's remained anonymous, kind of unnamed up to this point. She's been referred to as woman. She's been referred to as wife. She's been referred to as helper. But she hasn't been given a name yet. So we conclude by looking at verse 20. Genesis 3.20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Why do you think this is placed right after the sentence? Right after God tells them what the consequences for sin are going to be, this verse comes up. And we're supposed to see that there's a connection. So, so Adam gives his wife a name which means living. Does he do this to spite God? And there have been people who have made the argument that God is, is just, you know, he's, he's given them judgment, he's given them consequences, and so Adam is, is basically acting in a further act of um, rebellion and defiance here. But it seems a lot more likely that Adam is actually acting in accordance with the role that God has given him. By giving her this name, Adam is saying... God has made some promises here. And I don't know how God is going to do what he just promised to do. I have no idea. I don't understand how God will bring forth an offspring who will defeat death, who will punish Satan, but I believe that he will. I don't know how, but I believe that he will. And that's reflected in her name, which means living. He's trusting in God's promises. This is an act of faith. Maybe you have a hard time understanding these judgments. Maybe you have a hard time seeing the justice or the righteousness. Maybe they seem too harsh to you. But know this, for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his own holy character, God must judge and punish sin. But for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, God also offers the forgiveness of sin through him. God would have been perfectly just to completely wipe out the human race as a consequence for their sin. But God had a plan a greater plan. He had an eternal covenant, according to Hebrews, through which he would bring many sons and daughters to glory by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Romans 5.18 tells us that just as one man's sin led to the condemnation of all people, so too one man's righteous act, this offspring's righteous act, was sufficient to bring justification for all who, by the conviction and power of the Holy Spirit, would call upon the name of the Lord and they would be saved. Adam's fallen nature has been imputed. It's been transferred in a legal sense to all of his offspring. They inherit it. But through faith in Christ Jesus alone, the sin and the guilt that we rightfully deserve is imputed. It's transferred to Christ. And His perfect righteousness, in turn, is imputed to us. 
So let me give you a, a succinct understanding of the doctrine of imputation here. We have Adam's sin imputed to us. Through faith, our sin is imputed to Christ and His righteousness is imputed to us. Justice will be served against sin. Either you and I are going to pay the debt of sin if we refuse to place saving faith in Christ, or our sin will be paid for by the Savior. It'll be laid, our sin will be laid upon Him by grace through faith in Him. For Adam, there was only one tree that led to death. There were all kinds of trees that would sustain his life. There was one tree that would lead to death. After the fall, there are many roads that lead to death, but there is only one road that leads to life, and that is the narrow path. That is the tree of life. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. A holy and righteous God will never turn a blind eye to wickedness. But for those who will believe in this offspring, in the Son of God, in Christ Jesus, God will turn a wicked wretch of a sinner into a child of God. He will replace the fallen, sinful nature of Adam with a new nature in order that we would no longer desire independence from God, in order that there would no longer be enmity between us and God in order that we would no longer seek autonomy from God, but we would be desiring with this new nature to be obedient unto God. Friends, we live in a broken world, but the promise is this. If you're a child of God, He lives in you. He dwells in you. And we can face the storms and we can face the trials of life knowing that he is a God who is faithful to his promises. He will never leave us. That's a promise. He will never leave us or forsake us. And the day is coming when as his children, the best promise of all, we will stand before God in glory. And we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And for that reason, God will accept us. He will welcome us into his presence. And we will forever, finally, be freed from the curse of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us, even though sometimes, Lord, we confess that it's complicated and it's difficult and it's so opposite our culture and so opposite what we are comfortable with and used to. But we thank you, Lord, that you give us grace and that through your Holy Spirit you give us understanding and you give us faith in the one who bore our sin who took the curse upon himself thank you lord for sending your son jesus christ to bear the wrath of the curse that we deserved for ourselves
Thank you for making a way and drawing us to it. We pray, O God, that you would continue to grow us, continue to sanctify us, continue to break us free from the, from the, the bondage of sin that we all experience, knowing that one day that work will be complete. Teach us, Lord, to trust in those promises and to strive for obedience to you. Whether we understand how that is going to play out, whether we understand exactly why or not, we just ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart, a spirit that desires obedience to you. Be glorified in our lives, Father. Be glorified in our lives. We know that that is the purpose that you have for us. And so we commit ourselves to it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.